Hello, everyone. Welcome to Typhoon Talks, brought to you by Typhoon Consulting, a boutique management consultancy headquartered in Hong Kong. And I'm Chen Yang. Today, I'm joined by my co-host Kelly. Hello. And Tim Jones, the CEO and founder of SmartSafe, an innovative fintech savings solution. Welcome, Tim. Hi there. We're going to be talking about what it's like to fund a startup in Hong Kong, especially in the fintech sphere. And we're going to be looking more closely at addressing customer pain points, competitions with other players, dealing with regulatory bodies, and some potential access for startups. So, Tim, you founded SmartSave last year. Could you quickly tell us what SmartSave is and what the main business idea was behind it? Yeah, sure. Um, so SmartSave is a platform to help people invest directly in funds to help them reach their long-term savings goals. Um, it's riding the wave of fintech, which is getting a lot of attention at the moment. And a lot of people talk about that in a very disruptive way. Um, actually, I think the, the first thing I wanted to really talk about is saying, actually, we're not trying to be disruptive. And I think we're getting to the point now with fintech where actually we're trying to be more collaborative with the incumbents. Um, and actually, that on that basis, trying to actually create something a lot, a lot more valuable. So what we're doing in helping people reach these savings goals is tapping into a market that's actually not really being met that much. Um, and so our ideal market is actually for people who currently have cash saved in a bank um, and actually trying to get them to engage for the first time. So you're looking at a specific region of customers or global customers in general? Uh, so starting off in Hong Kong, and it, it plays into sort of the wider Asian Asian region. Uh, we're still at the very early stages, and so um, we're still in the pre-launch phase. Um, but then once that goes, actually then sort of look to see how far we can take it. So at, at the moment, there's a lot of opportunity in the Asia saving space. But ultimately, if it picks off, then uh, the wider world as well. So I can see that there are a lot of customer segments in the saving space. It can be old people who are planning for their retirement or millennials who's just started working and want to save for buying a house in the future. So how do you target at different segments of customers and how do you establish trust with them? Yeah, so the first step, we're looking to really target millennials. Uh, and going back to that point around the target uh, customer being the people who haven't yet engaged with financial services uh, in a savings manner. And so what we did is we, uh, we launched a survey and we found that about 60% of millennials actually save on an active basis, but not through any other mechanism other than just having cash sat in their bank account. Uh, and so it's really those people that we're trying to target to begin with to actually help them engage in financial services and actually get a lot more um, return for their, for their savings behaviours. Um, rather than having that cash just eroded away by, by inflation. And I think the re reason why we thought this was a really good opportunity is that actually all of the pieces are there at the moment. They, they already exist. Um, and so from, from a savings point of view, you can go to a stockbroker, you can buy uh, a low-cost tracking fund, which is through, delivered through ETFs, so an exchange-traded funds, which have exceptionally low costs um, built into them, which means as the customer, you get a lot more money back returning into your savings pot. Um, and you can kind of do this through some, some initial digital um, portals that some stockbrokers have. The issue is that quite often it's very daunting. People think that financial services is something that's very complicated. Uh, and actually just the, pr the very simple process of starting can, can be very difficult to get going with. And so what we're trying to do is actually just trying to create that helping hand to give people the confidence to actually go and do this themselves. Uh, and the outcome is that rather than sat having cash in your bank account that just gets eroded away, actually you start realising real returns on that. So do you think it's easier to establish trust with these customers than a big bank, for instance? 
I think that comes back to my point about trying to be collaborative with the existing incumbents um, and actually trying to realise what is important from customers from the different aspects of the service. And yes, um, so the big banks and insurance companies, they have that big trust name of sort of security. Um, but actually whether, whether they have a brand name that actually relates to around customer engagement and digital flexibility and transparency, sort of le less so. And so I think what we're trying to do is actually leverage the existing kind of trust bank within the financial services industry, which is there, um, but then put a kind of bolt-on service on top of that around an accessible and engaging platform to really help people then tap into that trust that, that, that is there already. Um, and so the, the process that we're trying to do is actually that the platform helps people understand how to set a goal up front uh, and then provides a link through to an established stockbroker that is licensed by the SFC and that is sort of meeting all of the regulatory requirements on the basis of, of uh, shared transaction and, and custodial services. Um, but actually it's providing that uh, link through for a customer to actually know how to go about it, who, who to go to and who to connect with um, to then get into that kind of e existing trusted network. So in collaboration with big banks or insurance companies, what are the difficulties you have encountered? I, th I think it's starting to just kind of get, get on the radar. And one of the benefits that we've got through with SmartSave is actually we got accepted into the Cyberport program. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the government-backed program here in Hong Kong. And through that, you have a, a wide network and then access to uh, the wider players around Hong Kong in the established financial services sector. So I think from a startup's point of view, that sort of overcoming that initial um, weigh in with the established firms uh, is one of the barriers to entry and then so it's about how do you utilize the resources that, uh, that are available to you to, to help get through them. So at what stage should a startup ideally engage these regulatory bodies and start thinking about the, the regulations on a whole? I think with, with the regulators, again it depends on what, what part in the supply chain are you looking to, to engage in. Uh, what we're really trying to do is actually leverage the existing regulatory solutions that are out there already and so uh, actually, the, the, the sort of the regulatory solution that is the overall package for SmartSave is already in place because it's working with stockbrokers that are licensed. Um, if you're looking to actually do a kind of full end-to-end -end investment platform or a full full solution that does require uh, a license, then it's sort of a, a, as soon as possible is sort of the, the general advice that's put out there. And the regulators are taking steps to be much more amenable to that and sort of the way in which startups operate as well. So you've seen the emergence of the sandboxes in, in Hong Kong. Uh, which had been established in Singapore for a lot longer and then in sort of uh, the UK and the US as well for, for a lot longer as well. Uh, and so those are some opportunities to start engaging on an early basis uh, if there's something that's then critical to, to your business. So I know that previously you worked in Singapore for a long time. In comparison to Singapore, what is Hong Kong's regulatory environment like? So as I was alluding to before, I think Singapore is um, a little bit further ahead and I think the MAS here is sort of co cognizant of that and actually um, embracing that and they've done uh, a lot of things recently to, to try and be a lot more helpful to, to the, the startup world. Uh, like I say, they've introduced some sandboxes recently across insurance and the SFC and, and, and in banking as well. Um, so it's sort of a, kind of a broad-based a broad approach to, to this. Um, the budget last year, uh, earlier on this year again, was sort of very helpful towards fintech in particular, with a big chunk of money sort of slewed towards that. So I think it's something where Sing Singapore, when I, I first moved there about five years ago, was already talking about and investing in the notion of being a smart nation. Uh, and then that's starting to bear fruits, as you can see now, sort of three to five years later. Hong Kong, I think in comparison, has actually got some other advantages that, that Singapore doesn't. And I was actually hearing someone talk about Hong Kong uh, in its comparison, not just to Singapore, but actually to San Francisco as well. And so in San Francisco, 
you can have the idea and you can build the idea, but then, and this is sort of wider than, than fintech, but in sort of tech generally, but then you want to go to China to then go and build it and scale it. And it's only in, um, uh, with sort of the mass production in China that you can actually get that sort of full growth for a, a tar uh, startup and its development. In Hong Kong and the Greater Bay Area, which again, through the regulatory changes and the positioning of what uh, the government is trying to do here, we actually have that on our doorstep. Um, and so this differentiates Hong Kong from both Singapore and, and San Francisco, is that you can have the idea and you can create it, and then actually we've got the, the capabilities on our doorstep to actually then scale it up. And right. And I think one of Hong Kong's advantages is its proximity to China. So do you think building a startup in Hong Kong helps your way into China more easily? Yeah, definitely. I think what they're trying to do with this Greater Bay uh, initiative in, in particular is a, an entry point into that. With the sort of the greater openness, it also means you have the, uh, the fight with the existing China competitors as well. Um, and so I think there's very much a trade-off around do you want to go into China and, and operate in a very different financial sort of fintech environment where there's already huge players that cross over from the tech world more yeah. generally as well. Um, when you look at what Tencent has got with their payment mechanism through WeChat plus Alipay and all of that stuff. Um, it's a very different competitive landscape to, say, Southeast Asia. But yeah, I, th I think the binary choice is do you want to use Hong Kong as a sort of launch pad into China and sort of the, the greater China region? Um, or do you want to sort of look around Southeast Asia, in which case maybe Singapore has certain advantages as a, as a launch pad for that? From customer perspectives, how are Chinese customers different from Hong Kong customers from the saving perspective? I, I think broadly, I mean, th there's a lot of commonality, uh, sort of similarities across the target, target segment that we're looking at, which is millennials. Um, and so one of the advantages of that is actually across both Hong Kong and China, but also around the rest of the region and, and the world. Um, there's a lot of similarities in that generation rather than geographical differences. One of the biggest differences, however, between Hong Kong and China consumers generally uh, is I think in China, the level of trust with tech and fintech in particular and the adoption around that uh, and, and the sharing of data. And so when you look at particularly, say, around Europe, what's coming with the GDPR and the, sort of the, the backlash against Facebook, if you can still, yeah. still talk about that um, in, in those terms, it's quieted down a little bit recently. But um, big questions around the trade-off in services that you receive from a company in, in relation to the data that you give them. Um, and in China, people are very happy with being at one very end of that spectrum, which is they're happy to have all of their data out there because they see that the value that they're getting from the services far, far outweighs the privacy concerns or, or any other aspects about sharing that data. That's different um, outside China um, and, and in Hong Kong. Um, and so I think it's around actually the positioning of that and it comes back to what you're talking about, trust and how you can then overcome that with the use of collaboration with incumbent firms and what people have been com comfortable uh, sharing in the past. So you mentioned a bit about uh, collecting user data and how there's a difference between China and Hong Kong. Do you have any plans for the future on what you could use potential collected user data for to evolve the business model? I and mean, one of the things that we're trying to invest in from the very beginning is the sort of the machine that we're going to build around intelligent marketing. And the key input to that is the data that you're collecting around uh, customer usage and behavior, and, and also particularly within the customer acquisition funnel. And so one of the key things that we're trying to do at SmartSafe, which is different to a lot of the other, say, robo-advisors, is that it comes back to our belief that actually a lot of the investment decision, a lot of the investment products are already out there. You can already buy low-cost ETFs. So whether you actually need someone to package ETFs in another sort of packaged product, 
uh, and then charge someone for that. Again, uh, we, we've got questions around what, what's the value of that additional packaging. So what we're trying to do instead is actually really focus on investing in the tech around the customer acquisition to really understand what are the, um, the points and the traits and the characteristics that you can learn about customers as you start onboarding them and which what bits work and what sources work and which ones don't, and then feed that back and then sort of building a real intelligent marketing model around that. And so what we want to do is really invest in that side of the tech um, and actually just channel people into the existing ETFs and the funds that people can pick themselves. And so it, it kind of comes back to the heart of the problem that we're really trying to solve is there's a whole lot of people out there who just have cash down their bank account. Uh, and that's a real shame because it could be put to much better use. Now, the reason it isn't is for a number of reasons. And what we're trying to do is solve those reasons. Why, why do people think that it's too difficult? What are the levers that help people realize they can do this stuff themselves? What are the levers that make people realize actually they do have complete flexibility around this? Um, and then what's the data that helps us understand and learn around that? And then build that into a kind of intelligent marketing model that then kind of actually hones that and, and improves over time. A lot of companies are building robot devices these days and it's very cost efficient and users can easily operate online. So it's more user friendly, especially to millennials. And from this perspective, do you think they have more advantages compared to your business model? The key difference between sort of a, a typical robo-advisor and what we're trying to do is that we're just a, a, a gateway to help people link into existing ETFs um, and then build a goal-setting tool, a tracking and monitoring platform around that for us to help identify people who then could benefit from this service. Uh, and they say what robo-advisors do is that they then add on an investment advice piece on, yeah. on top of that. I, I think that's that's very helpful obviously because they're still charging very low fees but they're still charging fees. What they've done which is quite clever is actually kind of convince the world that we've kind of forgotten around a kind of active versus passive uh, fund management debate and because they're riding on this this notion and this buzz, the buzzwords around fintech. But they're still charging a, a fee for effectively a kind of active, albeit low cost active fund management. Yeah, but it's quite small. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but what we're doing is saying is actually if you can just go direct to a stockbroker, yeah, you've got some transaction fees um, on the input into your flow for, for, those, uh, for that as a model. Um, but actually those fees remain flat over time because it's on the flows going in rather than the stock of assets under management. And so what RoboAdvisor is doing, they're still charging a percentage-based fee on the stock of assets under management. Uh, and that goes up and up and up over time as the assets obviously, ho hopefully, go, go up as well. Whereas what the smart save model does is actually it helps people realise that actually just through the flat transaction fee from buying shares on a monthly basis, uh, that can then be significantly lower again than even the low-cost robo-advisor fees. But would that increase the cost of transaction when you add, add a layer between the brokers and the users? Because your role is more like a middle person. Even through a robo-advisor, they then have to go to a stockbroker to purchase their fees, to purchase their shares. Uh, so they're still incurring those fees as well, and they're just passing them back on. What SmartSafe is doing is it's not charging any additional fees to the customer. Uh, it's enabling a customer to go to direct to a stockbroker. And then in return for that flat fee that they're paying to the stockbroker, we're looking to, to then receive some compensation from them so that the customer doesn't pay it any extra. Uh, and in fact, what we can do is we can actually help scour through the market and, and find the brokers that offer the best deals to, to the customers. Um, so again, it's one of the barriers to people doing this themselves is because you don't really know where to start. And it's difficult to understand what's the difference between a stockbroker, a normal broker, an insurance agent, um, an active fund manager, a robo-advisor, uh, all sorts of like different terms that people use, and some of them are different terms for the same thing, some of them are actual different things, um, 
and it's really difficult. And even in the industry, I I, uh, I get confused myself half the time when you're when you're speaking to people and uh, you're talking across purposes. Uh, so really, the value of what we can do is actually go through and actually just lay it out. We can be that helping hand to actually help people realise that it's not as difficult as it seems, and that they can do this all themselves. And I think what that comes back to, really in terms of the economics of a robo-advisor, is what happened when they launched first in, in the US, sort of 10, 5, 10, 15 years ago, uh, with Wealthfront of Betterment. I mean, they, they were very successful, but they found that the customer acquisition was very high. Mm. Then direct players, so sort of the vanguards of the world, sort of came in and actually offered a, di a direct solution themselves. Um, but again, a direct solution from an asset manager, again, doesn't help answer the, the question to the customer's point of view, is it, who do you turn to? Um, because it's just a, a simple provider, and, and again, you've got the question, are they the right one or not? Um, but they obviously had the scale to then overcome the high acquisition costs. The reason why that high acquisition cost exists in the kind of savings and fintech world is because people start from the basis of not knowing where to start. And people are very honest about that. There was a, I was reading a survey that was done in the UK recently where one in 10 people actually kind of used the phrase, I am rubbish at savings. Um, and so people are very comfortable with being rubbish at savings. Um, and therefore the old world solution to that was to provide advice, which makes sense when you have a face-to-face -face, uh, mechanism doing things and a commission structure that, that supported that. Um, what happens is that when you then try and provide advice in a digital mechanism, actually it's much less effective uh, and therefore the cost goes up and actually a lot of these robo-advisors that have popped up subsequently um, are finding it very difficult to actually get that customer acquisition cost low. And that's why we're taking the complete opposite tax actually to try and show people how easy it is um, and actually that they're not rubbish at this stuff. Um, we've just had 20, 30, 40 years of advisors trying to convince us how complicated it is so that they have a role in explaining uh, how to navigate through it. Whereas actually what we're trying to do then is actually have tools and mechanisms and engagement to show people that it's really simple uh, and actually you can do this themselves and therefore we can then kind of look, go through it and link through to a stockbroker. And our, our hypothesis is that the cost of explaining that people can do things which isn't complicated actually isn't going to be anywhere near as costly as trying to provide advice in a digital manner, uh, which is what the robo-advisors are trying to do. Does that mean that robo-advisors are going to be part of your supply chain one day? I don't think necessarily in the supply chain in the current model that we have. Uh, and, and like I say, I mean, it's, uh, it's all very early days and we're looking to see what happens and how we evolve and we haven't even launched yet, right? So uh, we're looking to launch hopefully next month and then, and then see where that takes us. Now, our, our hypothesis is that you can kind of get people through and people can do this themselves. If there is some advice for then as you move up a kind of uh, the need spectrum um, that you can do on a scalable and cost-effective manner digitally, um, then yeah, maybe there is, a, there is a role for that. But what we're really trying to do is just get solve that problem at the beginning of how, how do you enable someone to start saving for the first time. Just now you mentioned that you just got into Cyberport program. Is it easy to get funding or getting to the government scheme in Hong Kong? The government scheme, that, I mean, they have, I think it's sort of quarterly intakes. Um, it's quite a rigorous application process. Uh, so you've got to uh, have an online application, then you've got to go and pitch and present your case uh, with a panel, and then, and then they make their selection. So I think about 5 to 10% of applicants successfully get through. Uh, so a, re a relatively high bar for what they accept into the program. But like I say, they do this every every uh, rolling quarter basis. So they're continually investing in, in new businesses to help them get started. And then we've got into the first program, which is called the, uh, Microfund. the Microfund, the CCMF. 
Uh, and then if you graduate from that, then you can move into the incubation phase where they then offer a little bit more support as well. Uh, and, and the real benefit as well is actually they're, they're looking to then help support companies to grow beyond Cyberport. So it's the access to uh, the wider business network, it's access to investors that they have as well, it's uh, bringing people on and providing training and mentoring and things like that. Yeah, so the support that we've got through from Cyberport has been really helpful in, in getting us to where we are now. And looking to the future, what are the potential exits for startups and what are the benefits and the risks associated with each approach? So obviously the, the dream is to, to keep on growing, keep on going through the rounds of funding and to, to ultimately IPO if possible. And actually the, the recent changes in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange actually around the, uh, the different share listings uh, has actually been a, made it a lot more attractive place to, to list in Hong Kong in particular actually. And so there's a couple of high profile ones that I think have come through as a result, directly as a result of those changes. So, I mean, uh, best case scenario, that, that will be us in, uh, in, in a few years' time. But we'll kind of t take e each step as we go, uh, looking, like I say, looking forward to working hard to kind of get us to the stage where we can then have that initial launch and then take it from there. So, Tim, could you, for our audience, summarize what the key takeaways from today's episode would be? So, first up, I think it's just the, the huge excitement around what there is in fintech uh, in this region or in, in Hong Kong uh, and around the sort of uh, Asia and greater China as well. Uh, a lot of that is through meeting new customer needs that aren't met at the moment and really trying to provide new and innovative solutions that help people engage in ways that they're now used to uh, in other, other aspects of their life. Secondly then I guess around regulation, um, I think part of that is then the governments have, have kind of woken up to actually the value that they can provide in supporting people through companies through these early stages. Uh, and, and that's been really helpful from what, what they've got in Hong Kong and uh, looking to see how that develops and, and growing with that as well. It's finally, I guess, kind of when you then hopefully get to the end and exit, there's a number of opportunities to either uh, go through IPO here uh, or continue to work in collaboration with other incumbents and kind of seeing how those strategic investments could work through that basis as well. Great. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us today, Tim. And also thank you, Chen. Thank you very much. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me. Follow us on Twitter at Typhoon Buzz and iTunes and SoundCloud at Typhoon Talks for more podcast episodes. Also, please visit our website at typhoonconsulting.com for more industry points of view. We hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>